Good evening, everyone. Thank you all for coming this evening to uh, the Judy Matthews Lectureship, uh, featuring as guest lecturer our Bishop, Scott Jones. Uh, Thank you for being here. Uh, For those who may not, you know, pretty much the introduction that was in the bulletin this morning of both the lectureship and Scott Jones is quite good, so (laughs) let me add a little bit to it. Uh, on you know back back to Judy whenever she went to to Perkins to get her certification for for Christian education she would really come back every time excited uh, and, and tell me about the depth of the knowledge of the professors at Perkins and and their passion for for teaching and and she really wanted to provide a venue uh, at this church so that these uh, Bible scholars and, and professors and, uh, you know, would have a venue to come and, and share uh, their knowledge and their interpretation of the Bible with us. And that was Judy's uh, vision, and that's what she worked toward. And she had even started it. Uh, she had secured the first uh, lecturer, which was uh, Virgil Howard, Dr. Virgil Howard, uh, as the first lecturer. And uh, and, and that was right before she died, and after she died was when we had, uh, she died in March and May is when we had the first lectureship with Dr. Virgil Howard. And we've been having it annually ever since. We skipped one year, year before last, but uh, pretty much what we've been doing is having a, a Perkins uh, professor uh, one year, and then the next we'll get someone else that's renowned. We've had James Seaford from Duke. We've had Amy Jill Levine from Vanderbilt. We've had... Ellsworth Callis from Ashbury. So we've had a lot of notable uh, Bible scholars. And, and uh, those of you who have been here for those, I know I have really uh, benefited and, and learned a lot about different interpretations of the Bible from all of these uh, lectures that we've had come. So uh, I hope we continue and get a big benefit out of it. I hope you all get a benefit out of it. And I'm sure we'll get a, a big benefit from uh, from the bishop's talk tonight. Uh, uh, the bishop uh, of the Texas Annual Conference, he's uh, what, been a bishop for about, what, 12, 13 years now? So you're very experienced. <laughs> uh, but, but looking back through what, what he has done, he's, re- he's authored several books, edited uh, you know, several works, especially about John Wesley. I understand you're, you're big in the Wesleyan tradition, uh, and, you know, which is the, the foundation of our church. Uh, but he got his uh, degrees from the University of Kansas and then uh, at Perkins got both his master's and his Ph.D. Uh, focused on Wesley studies and history of biblical interpretation. Uh, he's been a bishop of the, uh, of, of the Texas Annual Conference now, uh, but also the South Central uh, Conference, the Nebraska Conference, and, and helped form the Great Plains Conference. So. Uh, you know, a lot of, uh, a, a lot of work for our, for our church that the bishop has done. Uh, so, but anyway, t- tonight, uh, his topic, I believe, is going to be radical discipleship, kind of a continuation of what he started this morning. So if you're in, in the service this morning, then uh, you, you've got a head start. Uh, but uh, anyway, we welcome you, Bishop. Uh, uh, but, but first, before we start, let's have an opening prayer uh, by our, our associate, Jim Calvert. And then we'll turn the microphone over to you uh, for your talk. Thank you. Will you pray with me? 
Almighty God, our Lord came to you and addressed you intimately as Father. And as his followers, we come to you now as your children. We thank you for the good gifts that you have given us, grace and mercy. We thank you for the gift of meaningful discourse and fellowship. And we ask that you would forgive us for all the times and ways and places that you have spoken to us. And we have not listened, we have ignored, and we have forgotten. We just pray that this evening you would open our hearts and our minds to receive the word that you have for us this evening. Pray for blessing upon Bishop Jones as he brings this word to us. And I pray that we would learn what it means to be radical disciples so that through us you might transform the world. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Well, I am so grateful to be presenting the Judy Matthews Lectureship here, grateful to Marty for the invitation, grateful to the Matthews family for creating this kind of opportunity, and glad to be here with you. As a word of warning, I need to tell you that you're in trouble. My wife is normally accompanying me, but we had a, she had a baby shower for our daughter-in-law up in Dallas, so she's literally on I-45 somewhere between Dallas and here. She would tell you that uh, my spiritual gift is teaching, and for 20 years I taught United Methodist doctrine and uh, history at Perkins School of Theology, so I'm used to a whole semester to talk. <laughs> and the chances of my going on and on and on and on without her here to give me the cut sign, you know, that Scott, you've gone on long enough there. So the fact that she's not here is, makes it a real problem for you all, but I'll do my best to stay in control. Part of my personal story is that I'm a fourth-generation Methodist preacher. Raised in the church, I, uh, you know, always was a part of a United Methodist Church until I graduated from high school and quit going to church for a couple of years. Uh, but by and large, that's my sort of tribal identity. When I was a, a philosophy major at the University of Kansas, my honors thesis advisor was a Presbyterian who took me to lunch, and he said, you're a Methodist. I said, yeah. He said, you must believe in the warmed heart. I said, what? He said, John Wesley and the heart strangely warmed. I said, what are you talking about? That goes to show you the level of which my growing up in the Methodist and then United Methodist Church, people had failed to teach me what it means to be a United Methodist. So I get to Perkins in the second semester. I'm supposed to take moral theology. I go to the opening class. I decide this is not the professor I want to sit under. And so I went to the board and Albert Outler was teaching Wesley and the Wesleyan tradition. I dropped moral theology. I enrolled in Dr. Outler's class. He was retired already, but still teaching. And for that whole semester, well, it was like Roberta Flack. 
He was strumming my fate with his fingers, telling my life with his words, killing me softly with his song. My good friend and colleague, Billy Abraham, says, Jones, you're a genetic Methodist. And what happened was that Dr. Outler was telling me who I was, and it was touching something deep within me, and I said, yeah, I'm home. It's like the poet said, we shall journey and journey, and at the end of our travels, we shall arrive back home and recognize the place for the first time. That was my experience. So I've now dedicated the last, well, 35 years of my life to trying to convey to people what it means to be a United Methodist Christian and to do that in ways that I hope for those of you who are genetic Methodists, will connect and say, oh yeah, that's who I am. For those of you who are raised Baptist, you might say, oh, I like that. I'm ready to continue being a United Methodist. Um, in other words, there are lots of ways in which describing who we are helps bring to our consciousness some things that, well, we haven't thought about very much and very clearly. So part of what I want to talk to you about, and the most boring one of my books was on John Wesley's conception and use of scripture. If you are having trouble sleeping at night, Mary Lou highly recommends it. Five pages of that book and you will be out you know, asleep for sure. But one of the things that I was able to argue in that book, and then in my later book on United Methodist Doctrine, is that at the heart of United Methodist teaching is an understanding of the way of salvation. Some of you may have studied my uh, adult Sunday school class study called The Wesleyan Way, which was an attempt to get that across to people, to a lay audience. But this understanding of the way of salvation lays out an understanding of the Christian life in a series of steps. Now, if you want the full-fledged argument of why this is official United Methodist doctrine, I can do that. But I'm more interested in asking, how does that vision of the Christian life impact all of us in this room? But first, I have to sort of lay out the steps. The first step is a doctrine that says we are all human beings created in the image of God. The biblical text for this is Genesis 1.26, where God says, Let us create the Adam, male and female, he created them in his own image. In other words, every human being is created in the image of God. This is a very important doctrine because it's the foundation of our teaching of human dignity, that every human being is precious in God's sight. So when I'm preaching on this topic, I sometimes look people in the eye and say, if you believe that your life is worthless, you need to hear the good news that God cares about you and you. We live in a world that continually tells people how inadequate they are or how bad they are. Uh, and the gospel says, forget what the world says, you're important to God. Your life matters. God loves you just as you are. That's the foundation of our United Methodist witness against racism, against sexism, that says every human being is valuable in God's sight and everybody matters. But the second step in this way of salvation is a doctrine of original sin. Every human being is a sinner. 
I made reference to that this morning when I said the only normal family is the one whose story you haven't heard yet. You know, some of us look really normal on the outside, but when you dig very deeply, we've all got our issues. We've got our problems. Things are broken individually and in my own life or in my family. Uh, I've done things that were just contrary to God's law. And so the, one of the strong ways that Methodists used to get across the gospel is to preach, God loves you just as you are, but you're a sinner and you need to repent. And that naming of sin is a way of, well, John Wesley talked about ordained ministry as the cure of souls. It's actually a, a long medieval tradition in the Church of England and the Roman Catholic Church. But the idea that religion is really about what he used the Greek phrase, therapy of the soul, that in fact religion is all about taking what's wrong in a person's life and healing it. So that it's really almost a disease model of salvation that human beings are sick and the gospel heals us. Well, that approach to understanding things has to begin with a diagnosis You've screwed up in your life. So have you. So have I. And the first step in wholeness is to name the disease and to seek a cure. That really leads to the third step in this way of salvation, repentance. Now, repentance, pardon me, Marty and Jill, I'm looking your direction, but this isn't personal. Um, (laughs) If a person is headed toward hell, and I usually like to have the choir behind me because I want them on my side. If a person is headed toward hell, repentance literally is just the process of turning their life in a different direction to go toward God, wholeness, and heaven. Literally, the Hebrew word for repent is shuv, S-H-U-V, which means to turn. The Greek word for repentance is metanoia, change of mind. And so what happens is that people who are, whose lives are a wreck, headed in the wrong direction, somebody needs to say, it's time for you to turn your life around and go a different direction. That's what repentance is all about, where you turn your life and head in the way you're really supposed to be heading. Now, the people in America who know the most about repentance are Alcoholics Anonymous. I was pastor in Prosper, Texas, a little town of a thousand people between Denton and McKinney, my first appointment. The AAs met in the basement of the United Methodist Church. It drove the good Christian people crazy because they smoked. (laughs) And so the Sunday school room smelled of smoke on Sunday morning. But as long as you've got a coffee pot and a group, you can hold an AA meeting. And that's what they did. Well, I became their pastor. Uh, I did their weddings, I attended their social events. I am not an alcoholic, but I certainly hung out with the AAs there. And they taught me a few things. First of all, they taught me you can't help a drunk. If a drunk is a drunk, you can't help him until he or she bottoms out. And it's understanding that turning point when they've bottomed out and they finally realize, I've got to repent. I've got to turn away from my addiction to alcohol. I've got to start a new life. That's the point at which you can help. 
they have a joke. You know the difference between a drunk and an alcoholic? Alcoholics have to go to meetings. <laughs> and so if you're at the beginning of an AA meeting, you go around the table and you introduce yourself, hi, I'm Scott, I'm an alcoholic. And they do that 20 years after their last drink. They might be sober for 20 years, but still, hi, I'm Scott, I'm an alcoholic. It's a naming of their disease and an understanding that, that healing that, sobriety, is a lifelong journey. The next step in this journey of salvation is justification. It's a big word, and sometimes people say, can't you find a different way of talking about it? But it's a biblical word. Romans 5.1 says, therefore, since we are justified by faith... Now, I saw some Emmaus crosses this morning, so some of you have been on Emmaus walk, and you may remember the five grace talks. One of them was on justifying grace. Well, justification is that step where we make a decision about who we really are. We decide, am I going to be a disciple of Jesus or not? Am I going to be a Christian or something else? Justification is that point where God has decided to offer us salvation, but God never crams it down our throat. I've always imagined it as a gift in an open hand put right in front of us. Nobody's forcing you to be a Christian. God's offering you a relationship. God's offering you an identity. And the question is, are you going to take it? Are you going to accept this gift that's been offered? God has done all the work. You don't have to do anything except receive it. And when you accept that identity, when you become a Christian, everything changes. Because all of a sudden, the deep decision about who you are is settled by your decision to follow Jesus. Now, John Wesley described religion, or salvation, as a house. The metaphor is very helpful because repentance, he said, is the porch. Justification is the doorway. Now, there are lots of our Southern Baptist friends who talk about getting saved as if it was just justification. Once you make that commitment to Christ, once you accept this offer of salvation, it's all over. Uh, I got saved and frequently people can tell you when that happened. Wesleyans understand salvation as a lifelong journey, a long process. And Mr. Wesley says, if justification is the doorway, sanctification is the rest of the house. So that for those of us who have decided to follow Jesus, that initial decision, however it was made, whenever it came, is just the beginning of a lifelong process of sanctification. Again, one of those big words, but I don't give up on it because I'd rather teach you the word and help you understand what it means. Sanctuary is a holy place. Sanctus is Latin for holy. Sanctification is the process where God is going to make you more and more holy. And that that's what the Christian life is all about. So you start off as a baby Christian, and the rest of your life is a process of becoming more and more holy, more and more like Jesus. 
Now, we Wesleyans say, along with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Not by works, lest anyone should boast, but saved for good works which Christ be pre- prepared beforehand for you. In other words, part of wha- how we make this journey is by the grace of God. And the crucial steps that are taken at each point is allowing God's grace to shape who we are, and that then shapes how we behave so that the good works that God has commanded us to do are the outflowing of these spiritual changes God is working in our hearts. So we're saved by grace. And again, I made just a slight reference to it this morning. But the way in which you make progress in this Christian journey is by connecting up with the grace of God. Hence, when somebody comes to me and says, okay, I want to be a Christian, what do I do next? I tell them to accept this offer of salvation, say, yes, God, I want to follow you, and then you begin some practices that put you in touch with the grace of God. How do I get some of that grace? Well, technically, God can save anybody anywhere. I hate to admit it, but God could save somebody on a golf course. Not on Sunday morning, but it's possible, you know. But the point being that God has decided to set some regular channels by which people can connect up with God's grace. And so if you're a disciple, you're going to put yourself in a place where God can influence you And you can get the power and direction you need to make progress in that journey. The story I tell is about a church in McKinney, Texas, where I was the interim pastor for two and a half years. The founding pastor had had a personal crisis. I was on the faculty of Perkins, and the district superintendent said, Are you available to be the interim pastor at Stonebridge Church? I said, What happened to the pastor who was my friend? He said, I can't tell you. Are you available to be the interim pastor? I said, well, I have to ask my dean. I went to my dean. He said, you might learn something doing this. Go ahead. (laughs) So I became the interim pastor for two and a half months. Stonebridge United Methodist Church was seven and a half years old, and the founding pastor had built into that church very high expectations for membership. You could not join at the end of a service. I was a pastor for 11 years, and I'd always invited people who wanted to join the church to come down forward during the last hymn. Not here. You had to go to Pastor's Coffee, which we held one Sunday afternoon every month. So three times I delivered this speech. Hi, I'm Scott Jones. I'm the current pastor of Stonebridge United Methodist Church, and we're really glad you're thinking about joining our church. Because, frankly, we think joining our church is an important step that you might make Uh, in your Christian journey. But I need to tell you what that's all about. I need to give you some warnings because membership has no privileges here. In fact, joining the church, you lose the privilege of parking in visitors' parking spaces. (laughs) You can remain a non-member and participate in all of our ministries and all of our programs. But we think membership is an important step and we just want to test with you whether you're ready to take it. For example, we expect members to be in worship every Sunday. 
we know that Christians need to hear the Word of God preached to receive the sacraments, to be in the Christian community. So if you're joining this church, you need to be in worship every Sunday, and we're going to track your membership. And if you skip a few Sundays, we're going to come talk to you about where you've been. Now, we know that some of you travel. Therefore, when you're out of town, we expect you to go to a church someplace, preferably a Methodist church, but could be any Christian church. So bring me the bulletin from the church where you attend. <laughs> Some people got so nervous they had the pastor sign the bulletin to show that they had really been there on that Sunday morning. Next, we think Christian discipleship requires being in a small group where you're spiritually fed. You hear the Word of God preached in the worship service, but you get your questions answered in a small group. So we offer Sunday school classes, uh, Emmaus reunion groups, women's UMW circles, United Methodist men group. We offer Bible study groups. Um, so we're going to come to you and say, which small group are you joining? And we're going to stay after you until you do join one. Thirdly, we expect you to join a small group where you feed others. Because the Christian life is all about serving other people. And we've got lots of teams that are engaged in various forms of service. And so we're going to keep asking you, which service group are you going to join? This is where the choir director always interrupted me and raised his hand and gave his spiel. The choir was a two-for-one deal because you were being spiritually fed and feeding others. And that was his pitch for new members. Uh, lastly, we expect you to tithe or move toward tithing. And so our pastors are going to know what you give. And we're going to keep encouraging you to give more money. Because we think Jesus talked more about money than he did about prayer. And money is a spiritual issue. Now, if you don't want to do these forms of Christian discipline to grow in your faith, please don't join our church. Wow. Now, how old is First Church Missouri City? Not the building, but when was this congregation founded? When? 55 years ago. Getting a 55-year-old church to adopt high expectations of the members is almost impossible. And I'm preaching in a church in a, little few, a few months that's 135 years old. It's even harder there. Now, there was a time in the Methodist movement when the attendance in our worship services exceeded the membership of that congregation. So that a church would have 50 members, but they'd have 150 in worship. Because they were teaching that high expectation form of Christianity that I've just described to you. Somewhere in the late 1800s and early 1900s, it flipped. So that as I talked about this morning, Methodism became more of a tribal identity, and people could consider themselves good Methodists, like that woman in McKinney, is where she was, at the gas station I talked about, who thought she was a good Methodist, even though she hadn't been in worship for, tw for 10 years, and didn't even know the name of the new pastor who had come in that 10-year period of time. In other words, we have lost our edge of talking about discipleship in really significant ways. Now, I'm probably going to offend a few of you tonight, and that's okay. Marty will clean up the spiritual mess after I'm gone. <laughs> but I'm here to tell you that when I started reading Mr. Wesley, 
and realized what our church had done in the past, I thought, this is what real Christianity looks like. And at the heart of it is the doctrine of sanctification that says we Wesleyans in our deepest mode want to be fully devoted followers of Jesus. We want to be holy. We want to continue making progress. Now, for some of us, the problem is we don't have a picture of the way of salvation, and so we don't really know what the goal looks like. For others of us, we've given up. We think, my life is such a wreck, I can't possibly be any better. When we go to that place, all of a sudden we're doubting the power of God. Because I think however old you are, however young you are, God has a vision for your life for you to be growing in your faith, growing in your hope, growing in your love, and making progress spiritually so that a year from now, you're going to be more like Jesus than you are today. And I hope today you are more like Jesus than you were a year ago. One way I describe that is that uh, I've been married to Mary Lou for 38 years, and I'm working on becoming a good husband. (laughs) I'm not there yet. I do a number of things that irritate her. I fail to do some things that you would think by now I would have figured out how to be a good husband in this marriage. Um, But I'm working on it. Because one of my goals is to be the best possible husband I can be. Uh, I set out to be a better father than my father was. I set out to do a number of things in my life. And while I've not yet arrived, I'm clearly better than I used to be. I'm still making progress. Rodney King was uh, in Los Angeles, and it was, uh, he was a man beaten by the Los Angeles police, caught on an early video. It set off the Los Angeles riots in 1992. And famously, during the riots, he went on TV and said, can't we all get along? That phrase, uh, well, it has both good and bad parts to it. On the one hand, he named the deep yearning we all have. Can't we all get along? And yet, it also just reeks of naivete. All getting along ignores centuries of racism, centuries of misunderstanding, centuries of difficulties in building one nation under God indivisible. Um, and while it's the yearning we all have, you need to get rather sophisticated about what it looks like. Well, that's the way I feel about sanctification in the Christian life. We all have this yearning to be moral people. We all have this yearning to love God fully. And yet sometimes, well, we get a little naive about what it really looks like and how, um, how difficult it is. And the awareness that, well, quite frankly, um, It's really about the grace of God, and whatever progress I've made in my life, I'm 63, whatever progress I've made to date is only by the grace of God, and that God has put people in my life and led me to some experiences and answered some prayers so that, quite frankly, I'm better off than I used to be, but it's all by the grace of God. What I want to talk about tonight 
is your personal life, our personal lives, and what sanctification looks like in those areas. Now, when I was in college, I had this fantasy of becoming a monk. I had studied medieval Christianity. I knew a good bit about monasteries and all of that. And there was something just really, really attractive to me about the monastery as a way of really pursuing holiness. Worship seven times a day, eight times a day. Uh, being engaged in a monastic community of deep relationships. And then I met Mary Lou. You could have laughed louder about that. I, that would have been okay. Um, and all of a sudden, the monastic uh, uh, ideal receded in priority. There are still days it's an escape fantasy of mine. Wouldn't it be nice to just get away from it all and do manual labor and, you know, not have to put up with the stuff I have to put up with? Um, but there's a deep principle in the Reformation that really goes to what I think is something that's important for all of us to think about when we think about radical discipleship. During the Dark Ages, as the Roman Empire was crumbling, monasticism became the way in which people could preserve genuine Christianity. As the culture was disintegrating, law and order disrupted, uh, foreign tribes like the Vandals and the Goths began to uh, take over control of territory and immorality became much more common. Christians who were serious about their faith retreated first into the deserts, uh, later into other kinds of communities because they thought that that was the best way that they could fulfill the Bible's commandments. To pray without ceasing, to uh, earn by the sweat of their to toil, to do a lot of other things and build a community of love and comradeship, women in one place, men in another place. That was a, an ideal. Well, over time, the monastic ideal began to deteriorate. They became very, very wealthy. They lost their zeal and focus. There were a number of monastic uh, revolutions at various times to uh, St. Benedict did some things. Uh, St. Francis did some things. Uh, these were people who took the monastic ideal and, and reinvigorated it as a desire to be more and more holy. But in the Reformation, Martin Luther decided that there was a certain kind of holiness that was appropriate for lay people in their normal lives. And that that was really what we ought to be talking about the kind of sanctification and radical discipleship that is ingrained in the normal pattern of life that people have. And so what I'm trying to get across to you in this talk is the idea that in your normal personal life, holiness is possible. It doesn't necessarily mean you're called to ordain ministry. That is a particular calling. That's a good way to do it. Or working full-time for the church as a layperson. Holiness means whatever you're going to be doing with your time, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, 365 days a year, ought to be infused with the love of God and the love of neighbor. So that it ought to be possible, whatever your pattern of life, to let those two commandments so infuse what you do that you're offering your whole life to God. Now, obviously, one place to start with that is in your home. 
we all have different family situations. Some of you are single. Some of you are widowed or widowers. Some of you are married. Uh, some of you still have kids at home. Some of you might even be raising your grandchildren. I want to talk about family life as a place where your Christian faith ought to make a difference, where the quality of your marriage is not something you take for granted, but something that you deliberately pay attention to. So that, I've talked about my marriage and how I'm trying to become a good husband. One of the most important things Mary Lou and I did was to lead a marriage retreat where we had to read some books and we led it together. That was an experience. I'm used to teaching. She's not so used to teaching. And figuring out how we were going to co-teach an entire weekend together was a really interesting, difficult experience. But one of the books that we read together was about the five languages of love. And that different people experience love in different ways. And so I'm not sure I can name all five of them. But one of the clearest things is that Love is best communicated to Mary Lou by service. If I'm doing what she wants me to do, she knows I love her. <laughs> okay? Um, and so that's her love language. And so I deliberately set out, as a result of that retreat in this book we read, to be more attentive in figuring out what is she wanting me to do and making my time available for that. I'm a bishop of the church. I am scheduled out. Well, I've got some speaking commitments for 2019 already, okay? Um, I live by a calendar. Mary Lou, I'm sorry you haven't met her yet. Not all, some of you have met her. She is a lot more fun than I am. She is more spontaneous than I am. And in her family, 24 hours in advance is long-range planning. Okay? So how do I cope with that? I cope with that by building in spontaneity on particular days in the future. That's not very spontaneous, <laughs> but it protects time when I can become spontaneous, okay? It works. <laughs> Figuring out how to love this woman well is really hard. She's complicated. I'm still trying to figure her out 38 years into this marriage. But the important part is, for all of you who are in a marriage, Give the time and opportunity to really ask, how does that work? It also has to do with time. If you have kids at home, or maybe it's the grandkids, maybe you're luckier than I am. I have four grandchildren at the moment, uh, two in Denver and two in Wichita, uh, and a fifth one is on the way this December, a little closer in Dallas. But figuring out how to spend time with your family. Now, lots of our younger families are so, there's so many opportunities and so many pressures. The question is, do you, how do you spell love? And the answer is T-I-M-E. We used to talk in the early days about quality time. There's no substitute for just plain old time. And figuring out how relevant adults, parents and grandparents, give quantity time to young children is absolutely crucial. It happens in a variety of ways, and people can get, cre can get uh, 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 creative about it. The Internet is helping in some regards. We've FaceTime with my Wichita two-year-old granddaughter most mornings. 
She's learned how to respond to Mary Lou and me on the screen. Uh, she loves hitting the button to turn it off. And uh, she's learned to blow us kisses so that when we get together, we're that way. Raising your kids and grandkids in church is absolutely critical. There's a missing generation of adults who are 25 to 45 years old. And for some of you who are grandparents, it means being a little more assertive and offering to take your grandkids to church and making sure that they get raised that way. Um, Mary Lou and I raised our family 500 miles from grandparents, but we raised them in the church. And it was that group of, of grandparents who helped do that that was absolutely crucial. A second place to talk about how the grace of God comes into your life is in your work. Again, people think to be fully devoted to God means a church vocation. That's not necessarily true because we need in our society quality Christian people engaged in lots of different forms of business and professions. I talk especially about public school teachers. I was pastor in Commerce, the home of Texas A&M University Commerce, formerly East Texas State University, who, which has a large education school. And I repeatedly said, if you're a public school teacher, you better be a Christian, because you're not getting paid enough, and you are on the forefront of all of the social problems in our society. And if you're not doing this work for Jesus, you're going to burn out. And so what we need are people who love children, who have high moral values, a commitment to excellence, and that care about how you do your work is going to sustain you for a long period of time. That's why I've been picking up on what Bishop Huey started in our conference, is encouraging every United Methodist Church to find ways of partnering and supporting their local public schools. How can we come alongside those teachers who are dealing with all kinds of issues with the kids in our culture and help our public schools be the best that they can possibly be. Another place that I've experienced recently, the ways in which our Christian values are put into work in the workplace, I'm on the board of Methodist Hospital in Houston. And one of the things I've been impressed with is that throughout the Methodist Hospital system, They've been embedding into all of their employees what they call eye care values. Integrity, compassion, accountability, respect, and excellence. And outsiders who have come to evaluate say that they can talk to anybody from a janitor to a nurse to one of the surgeons to the administration, and those values get infused into everything they do. Yes, we have chaplains who are there. Yes, there's a picture, a statue of Jesus in the uh, welcome spot and a mural of Jesus in one of the main places. But the point being that, that Christian values can be translated into a secular setting and made to touch people without regard of their religious background. I'd also lift up my wife, Mary Lou. She runs a construction company with 100 employees. They're scattered from Nebraska to West Texas. She builds bridges for the highway department. But one of the things that Mary Lou does is she runs her business with integrity. A number of years ago, there was a price-fixing problem in the highway construction industry. She and I drove past the minimum security prison in Big Spring, and Mary Lou said, I know three guys in there. 
but they were all in the asphalt industry. <laughs> because all it takes, since she builds concrete bridges, all it takes is one honest contractor who's not participating in bid rigging, and the whole system works because you can't fix prices if there's one honest person bidding on the job. She also pays health insurance for all of her employees. Some of her competitors don't do that. She's always done that because we're a company that cares about our employees. I don't care if you're in the oil industry. I don't care what you're doing. There are possibilities of being a Christian employee, whether you're a janitor or the president and CEO. Also, some of you look like you might be in retirement. Just guessing. <laughs> Sorry. I don't mean to make judgment calls, but I, you know, I'm out there on the limb. One of the things when the pastors retire from the Texas Annual Conference that I say to them is in the retirement ceremony is, there is no retirement from discipleship. One of the things about retirement is that because people are retiring in their 60s sometimes, they may be living another 30 years. And if you're a disciple, Jesus didn't say, follow me until you're 65 and go on Social Security and Medicare. No, you're supposed to follow Jesus for the entirety of your life. Retirement is this huge privilege whereby we're given some financial options and security and some time options to be even more useful to Christ now than we used to be. So that one of the things I'm looking at are the number of United Methodist Christians who are in their 70s and 80s and saying, you've got good health. What can you do for Jesus that you're not currently doing? It's that process of sanctification where you look at your resources and say, if I'm serving God with everything I've got, how can I marshal my time? How can I marshal my talents? How can I figure out where God can use me to make a difference? That might be volunteering at the church. That might be mentoring kids at the local public school. There have got to be new and better ways in which you can use your talents. Tomorrow night, we're going to be talking about how we bring our resources to bear in the larger community setting of American culture. The last category I want to talk about in terms of our personal lives, though, is finances. And by the way, I'm going to open this up for questions and answers in uh, about five minutes. And when I do that, uh, I will take questions on anything I've said tonight or this morning or anything about the Methodist Church that you want to ask. So I'm happy to do that. One of the things about Methodism that I think is a bad habit we've gotten into is that too many of our preachers don't talk enough about money. <coughs> our churches tend to discourage it. Uh, I don't know what the practices are at this church, but I know of churches, uh, especially smaller ones in more rural areas, where they refuse to hold a stewardship campaign because they don't want people talking about money because, well, we've dumbed down discipleship We've decided that following Jesus can be done by attending worship twice a year. We don't want anybody talking to us about our wallet because that's what we really worship, not God. When in reality, as I said earlier, Jesus talked more about money than he did about prayer. And so the best Christian churches, the ones that are most alive and most vital, never hold a stewardship campaign tied to their budget because that means people are not going to give enough. Too many times, club members 
look at the club dues, and they want to join a club where the dues are as low as possible. Christians ought to be asking, how can I give as much money away as I possibly can? Again, we go back to one of our doctrinal standards as a church, a sermon by John Wesley called The Use of Money. It's interesting because Wesley says that there are three rules for the use of money. The first is gain all you can. There is nothing wrong with making a ton of money. You ought to gain as much as you can. You ought to earn as much as you can. Find a job that's going to pay you as well as possible and then just rake it in. Now, there are some limits to that. You cannot have a job that hurts somebody else. So that he lists, interestingly enough, far earlier than some of our laws about uh, employee protection, you can't have a job where your employees are going to be endangering their health by following their occupation. You can't make a product that's going to be used to hurt other people. In other words, our work has got to be done for the common good. But when you've got a profession, a job like that, make as much as you can. Secondly, he says, save as much as you can. Now, part of the problem with teaching Methodist thinking is that John Wesley's using common terms from the 1700s. And uh, sometimes you have to translate them so that when he says save all you can, he doesn't mean put it in the bank. He means reduce your expenditures. Figure out how to be frugal. Do the least amount of spending on yourself that you possibly can. So if you have the choice between a more expensive thing or a less expensive thing that'll work, you go the less expensive route. You try to be as frugal as you possibly can. And then lastly, you give all you can. Tithing is not a United Methodist value. Well, let me back up. Tithing, I have taught, is a good beginning point for the Christian life. Because for most of our United Methodists, they're giving between one and a half and two and a half percent of their income every year. Tithing would be a huge step up to get to a 10% giving level. That's a starting point. But Mr. Wesley says it's not enough. You ought to be giving all that you possibly can. So that my personal standard is, Mary Lou and I started tithing early on. We've had a number of financial commitments that we've had to make over our 30 years, eight years of marriage. But now our kids are graduated from graduate schools. We're at a place where we don't have a house payment to have to make. We ought to be giving more money away than our tithe. And so we've been upping our giving past the 10% level because we think that's what being faithful is all about. Maybe the time will come when I can even raise my percentage even higher than it currently is. But my goal is to give as much money away as possible. Now to tie that back into the family, one of the best things she and I did when our kids were young, we had this tithe, and we've always given Mary Lou's tithe to the church she belongs to. But when I was on the faculty, I didn't belong to a church. I was a member of the conference, and so uh, we had extra money at the end of the year. We gathered the kids together and said, we have this many thousand dollars to give away. You kids, where should we give it? Our kids all tithe. Because they had that Christmas practice at the end of the year that we had set aside this amount of money we're going to give to some Christian cause, and they got to participate in the shaping 
of how to do that. Friends, what I'm trying to get across to you is radical discipleship. The word radical means that we're at the root, radish, root. It means that we've stripped away all the accoutrements, all the stuff that gets in the way of being a full-blown Christian, and said, this is what it really means. I taught disciple Bible study, disciple one, nine times. I could never graduate to disciple two. I, I would like to do that someday, but I never quite made it because as a pastor, I always thought getting people engaging the scripture was useful. And what I loved about what Bishop Wilkie and Julia Wilkie did in that study, at the end of each chapter, there was a section called the Marks of Discipleship. Maybe some of you have done this. And it asked pointed questions. One of them was, are you prepared to tithe for the rest of this study? That was always an interesting conversation. The last one was where the other people in the group were to identify your spiritual gifts. So the other people in the group who had been with you those 34 weeks began to tell you, I think you've got this spiritual gift. Wow. That was major affirming for a lot of people in our groups. It was a way of taking the Bible and bringing it to bear on our lives. So before I open it up for questions and answers, let me revisit the text from this morning. There are some places in the Bible that I think are so rich and so deep that they really do bear in mind that they really do have an impact on how we think about our whole life. Philippians, the second chapter, is one of those passages. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, any compassion and sympathy, make my joy complete. Be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus. Now, this is where reading a little Greek is always helpful. Because what he says by let this mind be in you, what he means by mind is not intellectual thinking. He means practical wisdom that issues in behavior. So let this whole way of being be in you. Let this lifestyle be in you. Let this approach be in you that was in Christ Jesus. I'm convinced Jesus is our model. I'm convinced that God gave us an example of what it means to be fully human. I'm convinced that Jesus is the exemplar of our faith and the one who helps us figure out how to live a truly godly life. Now, this sounds like a huge burden because whenever I read the scripture and take it seriously, I'm usually driven to my knees. I think, God, I can't do this. God, this is beyond me. God, you are asking of me things I can't deliver. <coughs> and when I get that way, God usually says to me, I got you just where I want you because you can't do it without me. It's only by the grace of God that I've made what little progress I've made. I'm really clear about the goal, and I can describe for you the many ways in which I've fallen short of that goal. But it's in my church family. It's in my 
relationships. It's in the preaching I've heard that my faith has grown and my behavior has improved over time. My last story about that before I open it up for questions. When I was on the faculty, Mary Lou uh, and the kids picked Treach Memorial United Methodist Church in Flower Mound to join. So that was our home for seven years. Great congregation. They blessed us. We've always belonged to a Sunday school class, and that was our group. Even though I was out teaching and preaching most Sundays, I was there, you know, one Sunday a month, something like that. Well, I was walking in to the sanctuary, and there was a line to get in. I don't remember why it was taking so long. And two people ahead of me in the line was this woman I truly admired greatly. She was an executive at Christian Community Action. That was the uh, ecumenical Christian body that ran the food pantry and clothing closet and gave money to the poor. So when needy people came to Treach, we sent them to CCA. And I knew this lady. She'd been on Emmaus Walk with me. She had done all, you know, I, she was just a spiritual giant. She turns to me and says, Scott, glad to see you. I said, good to see you too. She said, the food pantry needs somebody to work Wednesday night. Are you busy? <laughs> I've already told you Mary Lou and I were tithing and that we had extra money that wasn't committed to our church budget. If she had asked me for $25, I would have written that check without any hesitation. That would have been easy. The most precious asset I have is my time. I admired this woman. She looked at me and said, we need help Wednesday night. Are you busy? And the problem was I wasn't busy. And I made a commitment 40 years ago never to tell lies. And so I told her the truth. No, I'm free Wednesday night. Good, she said, we'll expect you at 5.30. <laughs> so I went. I'd never been to the food pantry. I delivered food for others to take to the food pantry. And I realized what an incredible operation it was and that Christ, you remember Matthew 25? Sheep and the goats? You want to get to heaven? What are you supposed to do? Feed the hungry, Jones. Come on. I started working the food pantry. Turns out the third Wednesday of every month was an empty night, and they didn't have enough people. Every month, it was a chronic problem. So I went to my Sunday school class and told them about this problem and invited them to come. I did to them what she had done to me. Are you busy Wednesday night? We need five from our class. And our class adopted third and then eventually also fifth Wednesday nights and ran the food pantry that way for the next four years. Then I moved. What I'm trying to say is it was in my church family that people urged me to be better than I was. And the invitations that came were powerful. Um, since becoming bishop, I don't work in food pantries anymore. I have to figure out other ways of being involved in feeding the hungry and obeying Christ's commandments. You can't do everything. We're limited human beings. We belong to a church where there are different gifts in the body of Christ. But we ought to be asking, how can I be doing more? 
to serve Christ and become more holy than I've been. I've got a few minutes for questions. Are there things you want to ask me or argue with me about? Or, uh, and I'm open to anything about anything you want to hear from the bishop about. So what's and, on your mind? And, that you and we are about? recording this, so if you wouldn't mind speaking into the microphone with your questions, that would be a wonderful thing. Okay. Oh, come on. We're good Methodists. We've got to have some questions. Uh, my father was on the faculty of Garrett Biblical Institute on the campus of Northwestern, so we lived in Evanston, Illinois, for five years. Um, the happiest years of my childhood were in Evanston. We loved it. Uh, back in the day, uh, it was safe, and as a 12-year-old, I rode the elevated train to Cub Games by myself. Well, a friend of mine and I did together. So, people ask me where I'm from, and the answer is I don't know. Uh, but once again, because I'm a committed Christian, I'm like Paul. I can be all things to all people in order to win the more. So, if I need to be a Southerner, I tell them I was born in Nashville, and that uh, <laughs> my people settled Boonesboro with uh, Daniel Boone on his third trip into Kentucky. Uh, if I need to be a Yankee, I tell them my mother and grandfather were in Iowa for all those years. Now, Mary Lou, she knows where she's from. Her family homesteaded Republic County in the 1880s. Her father had 49 first cousins, all of whom stayed in that county. Um, so the home office for her construction company is in her hometown of Scandia, Kansas, Swedish community. Um, I was uh, preaching in Mulvane, Kansas, and a woman walked up to Mary Lou and said, you and I are cousins. Mary Lou said, who are you? <laughs> she said, well, my maiden name was Aspergren. Mary Lou said, I'm not related to any Aspergrens. I watched these two women negotiate their history, and their grandmothers were sisters. Um, <laughs> she was from Scandia. So don't go to Republic County and talk bad about my wife, because you're probably talking to her kinfolk. What else? It means, well, again, do I get one sentence or a whole semester? Three minutes. Three minutes. What does it mean to be Methodist? It means to follow Jesus, to be on the way of salvation, sinking sanctification. Uh, it means to belong to a church family and be loyal to its discipline. So that being Methodist means you have a commitment to weekly worship and to a small group and to using your money and your time to serve Jesus in the best possible ways you can. So that I would condense this hour-long talk I just gave you into four or five sentences. Um, one of the things Mr. Wesley said is, the New Testament knows nothing of solitary Christianity. So I was preaching in Galveston at Moody Memorial last weekend, and one of the lessons I was trying to get across to them is to attack a heresy. The heresy is current in American culture that says you can be a Christian and have nothing to do with organized religion. That's a lie. And yet it's a common one out there. Um, and so what I did with you all was a slightly different take on that to say we've dumbed down the faith to think I can have my name on a roll 
and not participate. Now, you all, I come across as a little harsh. I need to explain there are excused absences from worship. <laughs> when I was pastor in Howe, Texas, in Grayson County, near Sherman, uh, I visited the members of the church who were in nursing homes once a month. I don't know if that's enough or too much, but that was my practice. But, so I went to see these two sisters in the nursing home in Sherman, and one of them, they both had had strokes. One could speak, the other one couldn't. And the one who could speak was saying, oh, preacher, I just wish I could do something to serve Jesus. And um, every now and then, as a pastor, I got it right. And I said, well, you can. She said, what can I do? I said, you can pray. She said, okay, what should I pray for? I said, pray for some people to come to church. Well, 30 days passed. I had preached four sermons. I had visited a lot of people. I'd been involved in the youth group and disciple Bible study. I walked back into these sisters' room. First thing out of her mouth, did it work? <laughs> now, the way I'm telling the story, you all get what was really going on, but me, I was clueless to what work? What is this woman talking about? What, what? And so I said, did what work? She said, well, did anybody come to church? I said, two families joined last week. Thank you very much. <laughs> so if you're paralyzed and in bed, you have an excused absence from worship. Okay? But you ought to be using your time and your talents, and this woman had become a prayer warrior. She was amazing. Um, so the question is, uh, yeah, there are extenuating circumstances, and God is a God of grace and forgiveness, but Methodism means figuring out how to love the Lord your God with all you got. Now, when Mr. Wesley writes his book, What is a Methodist, his little pamphlet, he basically says, there's nothing unique about Methodism. It's just plain biblical Christianity. That's a good answer. What else? Yeah. Right. Right. Rick Warren is a Baptist who really ought to be a Methodist. <laughs> uh, he's pastor, founding pastor of Saddleback Church out in Southern California. Wrote a book called The Purpose Driven Church. And in it is a, a visual of concentric circles. I wish I could name them from memory. But it uh, starts with the crowd and then ends up with the core. There are five different C words in there. And that what every church ought to be doing is engaging non-believers in the crowd, in the community. Maybe it's the community, the crowd, the committed, the core. I've got four of them, I think. But the point is that you've got to have, be a church that is engaging non-Christian or nominal Christians in conversation and inviting them into the Christian life. But you've also got to be clear what progress looks like. And so I'm not suggesting that all of a sudden First Church Missouri City or One Life all of a sudden sets standards for membership that are so incredibly high but I think the leaders of the church do, in fact, need to know what really 
core committed Christianity looks like and invite people into that so that in Warren's graphic, you're always trying to get people to move toward ever deeper commitments. And so there ought to be an expectation communicated in the church, and this works especially for new members. When you have a new member orientation, you say, people at First Church Missouri City, they belong to small groups. Which one do you want to belong to? And you're all the time as leaders, whether it's the staff or uh, other lay leaders, forming new small groups so that everybody is, uh, has an opportunity to belong to a group. Now, small groups come in different shapes and sizes. Some of the books that I've read said the men's softball team is a small group because if you miss practice in the game, you're missed. That's not nearly as spiritually deep as an Emmaus reunion group. An Emmaus reunion group that's working the card, asking about piety, study, and action, and discipleship denied and closest to Christ, that's a spiritually formative group. I have one. Um, it's, it's important that you have a group of people who are looking at you and saying, how is it with your soul? It's also important that you have a group of people that if you begin to go off the rails, whatever it is, you're uh, being tempted in some sinful behavior or you're not performing the way you should, there ought to be somebody in your life who looks you in the eye and says, what are you thinking? You're crazy. And if you don't have anybody like that, how do you stay making progress in this? So it's... It's really about f setting up a discipleship system where the people in your church know what being a mature disciple looks like and have opportunities to practice it. It's hard. Yeah, Diane. Um, I'm very happy to tell this story uh, because it's part of a different sermon that I give regularly, um, but here's the bottom line. Um, again, I, was, I went through confirmation. Uh, it didn't take. I joined the church, but I didn't know what I was doing. I sort of graduated with my sixth grade class because I moved that spring. My confirmation experience was uh, about three weeks long. Um, but that's what all sixth graders did at the Methodist Church in Greencastle, Indiana. Uh, I then had an experience in the summer of 1969 working in an inner city mission project in Tampa, Florida. And I saw the church making a difference in dealing with poverty and combating racism. I went to my first uh, Vietnam War demonstration. I grew my hair long and bought sandals that had tire tracks on the bottom. And I decided that the church was actually a useful institution for bringing about social change. But I didn't go to church that summer. Then when I graduated from high school, uh, I quit going to church altogether. I moved away, worked for a year and a half. Um, 
th nobody had ever talked to me about faith in Christ in a personal way. Church was sort of this club that I was raised up in and that's what people did, but I didn't see any purpose behind it. I'd never had a deep experience of faith. Well, I was hitchhiking from Washington, D.C. back to Nashville. And if there are young people in the room, I usually say, please don't do what I did. You know, this is dangerous. I'm surprised I lived through it, but I did. Uh, I don't recommend it, but this is my story. Interstate 81 runs down the Shenandoah Valley, and I got picked up by a truck driver in Bristol, Tennessee, who took me to Knoxville, where I caught the interstate to go west to Nashville. And for that hour and a half, I think, that truck driver shared his faith with me. I do not remember what he said. I remember he was a Seventh-day Adventist. But what is crystal clear in my mind, as I got down out of that truck, was I want what that man has. Um, I went back to church at West End United Methodist Church in Nashville. It was Lent. And I joined a Bible study full of old people. They were in their 50s. <laughs> when you're 19, that was really old. And I usually have to explain to the young people in the group, but you all will get it. They had a cassette tape recorder. There used to be such things. And the pastor had uh, put a little message to start the Bible study on this cassette tape recorder, and it was boring as all get out. I went to the University of Denver the next year, and the campus ministry, uh, the Methodist Church had no campus ministry at this school. So I started going to the Navigators and Campus Crusade. And they taught me that if I would, there was a little image of a heart with a throne and Christ on the throne and a sinner's prayer. And if you would pray this sinner's prayer, God would zap you. Brother, son, sister Moon had just come out. And in that movie, St. Francis is on his knees in a ruined church, and the crucifix, Christ on the crucifix, comes alive and says, Francis, rebuild my church. So I'm thinking, God, you did it for Francis. Come zap me. I'm ready. I, I want to know. I want faith. Nothing happened. The experience that those groups taught me to expect never materialized in my life. But they were the only Christians I knew because the Methodist Church had given up on campus ministry at a Methodist university. I transferred to the University of Kansas chasing a girl. By the way, I broke up with her and met Mary Lou the next year. Uh, that worked out. Um, but I lived in the basement of the campus ministry, and they had no Bible study. And so uh, this is my second year, my junior year, uh, a group of friends and I organized Christian Bible study at the campus ministry. All this time, I'm wondering, am I a Christian? I am kept expecting to get zapped. I remember going down to the altar at First Methodist Church in um, uh, Lawrence, praying for God to give me some answers. Meanwhile, I was working for the campus minister, and I became youth director at a church. Okay. It was a March afternoon, I was on my knees in the chapel of the campus ministry building, when all of a sudden this incredible peace came over me. And I realized, I've become a Christian. So I tell people I'm a born-again Christian. 
it was just a four-year-long labor. And that people come to having faith in Christ in a whole variety of different ways. And um, that my experience is mine. Your experience, well, my son Arthur is a pastor in Plano, Texas, and he has never strayed. Uh, I was his confirmation teacher, and it took. And he's just never left the faith, and he's, he's a much better preacher than I am. Uh, he, you know, he's an incredible young man. Uh, so his story is one of continuity, not a decisive moment. Well, there are others who strayed and then all of a sudden found their way back to it. Here's what I would suggest for adult children who are millennials, and that is a group where most of my nieces and nephews were raised in one church or another and are not active, is that somehow... Um, our churches have not delivered a convincing and demanding version of the gospel. One of the books by Kenda Creasy Dean calls it moralistic therapeutic deism, where we've watered down the faith in our own lives as adults and in our preaching that it's not something compelling. And frankly, I think for some of those people to talk about sanctification the way I've talked about it tonight would be attractive to some of those groups. They would also be attracted to mission work so that when you're engaged in Hurricane Harvey relief, repairing a house, inviting some of those 40-year-old adults to be involved in it, and then to use that as a time of spiritual conversation so that if anybody asks, why are you doing this? You say, because I love Jesus. Um, we, we have gotten in the Methodist church to where, well, there's a whole nother spiel I give on the 20 components of an evangelistically effective congregation. And by the way, I have a website called extremecenter.com where some of these documents are put. But in there, I talk about how in a, an effective evangelism program, you are, lay people have got to be able to verbalize their faith so that you go to your church and you can invite somebody to it and say, this is why I go. This is what I've found there. You have to be able to at least, um, the Verschels took me to a new restaurant today for lunch. They were bragging on it. It was good. It's, I know where it is. I'm probably going back sometime. But they were bragging on this restaurant even yesterday and saying, you're going to love this. Well, I get it. But if we can talk that way about a restaurant, can't we talk that way about our church? About Jesus? About the Christian life? Here's what I'm convinced of. In the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, blessed are all those blesseds, the Beatitudes. The real translation, the one John Wesley uses in his version of the New Testament is happy. Happy are the poor in spirit. Happy are the peacemakers. Happy. And he said, if you really want to lead a life that's meaningful, that's fulfilled, that if you really want joy, if you really want to be 
have a successful life? Give Jesus everything you can. Thanks for the question. I've about used up my time, Lee. Thank you so much. It's been joyful. Well, you're very kind. I know I'm the bishop and nobody walks out on me. Well, <laughs> usually most people, certainly the preachers don't walk out on me. But uh, I'm also mindful that it's 7.50 and you all have been a very patient audience. Thanks. I'm looking forward to being back here tomorrow night. Uh-oh. I could be in trouble. Okay, thank you all for being here tonight. It is very, uh, you covered a lot of topics and covered them well. And it's very, very interesting. Really appreciate it. So if you would all uh, join me in prayer real quick. Dear Lord, we, we thank you for this day. We, we thank you for um, uh, Bishop Jones being here and, and the wonderful uh, talk that he gave us. It, it gives us much material to think about in our Christian walk and our Christian lives and our church life. We thank you for that so much. We thank you for being with us and the many blessings that you have given us. This we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you all for being here. We'll see you tomorrow night. At 6 o'clock, there's a barbecue dinner. And then at 6.30, the, uh, uh, the lecture starts. <laughs>